Hello and welcome to the Patelli Like It Is podcast. This is Matthew Patelli. And on today's episode, I want to discuss a few topics. The three I want to touch on is number one, the impeachment and the whole process going on there and the people involved and the things surrounding the impeachment. I want to touch on the economy, how it's doing, um, my thoughts on the economy and economics in general. And then number three, I want to touch on the Democratic primaries and the nominees and how I think I see that playing out and where they currently stand in terms of polling, um, so forth and so on. So let's start with the first one. Let's start with impeachment. So the trial started on Tuesday and it's continuing uh, to, to go on with basically the senators just laying out their case for why the impeachment should be, you know, being the trial should be, be being held. And you have the Republicans talking about, you know, their case on why they think the impeachment is a sham and blah, blah, blah. And you'll have the senators presenting their cases in the next few days. And then either over the weekend or next week, I'm sure we'll have the actual um, questioning of the witnesses begin. And I want to start with one talking point I keep reading online and seeing people say about how the impeachment is boring. Now, this this opinion is mainly coming from people on the right who want to throw shade on the impeachment in, in general, and they talk about how the impeachment is boring and, you know, Americans don't care, no one's watching, no one's listening, blah, blah, blah. Correct. But what I see is the majority of people making this um, this observation are people on the right who want to disparage or throw shade at the impeachment in general. So the impeachment is boring. Duh. Right? Most people are going to find this boring. Most people don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the jargon. They don't understand the laws. They don't understand the proceedings. They don't understand how it all goes down. So if they're not understanding any of it and it's baffling to them, they're going to check out and they don't care. They'll move on to a myriad of other things that are entertaining, that are, you know, all within a finger's reach of their phone. Of course, you know, they're not finding this entertaining. And then you also have the fact that if our politics were working properly and everything was functioning uh, normally, as it should be, most citizens in this country wouldn't really care to be that involved in, in what's going on with impeachment because they would trust in our politicians that they're acting in good faith and they're going to do the right thing in terms of impeachment. You know, th- we would have uh, a social trust going on in the country that things are going to be ironed out the way that they're supposed to in accordance of the laws and rules of this country and impeachment in general. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why people aren't so involved and don't really care what's going on. And then you also have the the aspect that, you know, they just have their lives to live and they're not really into politics. So... You know, they may check in and read some headlines, watch a couple of minutes of it, make sure, 
you know, they, they have the, the basic level understanding of what is actually happening at the moment, but they're not going to be riveted by the impeachment hearings. I'm not shocked by this. This can be, you can look at it from both ways. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing, but what you can't say and you can't use it uh, to disparage the entire impeachment in general. And this is what I see happening from many people, particularly on the right in terms of impeachment, because they just want to disparage it in some way because they know that the, uh, the situation and the facts at hand are really not in their favor. So if that's just an observation you're making, great. You're probably right. It's probably boring to most people. But don't let people use that as a, a way to disparage impeachment in general. That takes me to the next thing that I've noticed. And these are just bad faith arguments coming from people who, again, want to, you know, make sure they muddy the waters around impeachment. And um, the first one is talking about, you know, you need a crime. There's no crime. There's no, He hasn't committed a crime. How is he being impeached? Well, this is just this is just false. This is just not accurate. You don't need a crime to impeach. Plain and simple. I don't need to take it any further than that. If you want to take it a little further than that, Google is your friend. Do a Google search. You don't need a crime to impeach. Um, next is the whole whistleblower. So they'll keep bringing up the fact that we still don't know who the whistleblower is and, you know, the whistleblower needs to come forward and how are we having these impeachment proceedings if, you know, we don't know who the whistleblower is, blah, 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 and so on. This, again, is, is not necessary. It's not a good faith argument. We don't need the whistleblower. We don't need to know who the whistleblower is. That's not how trials and proceedings work. I mean, everyone knows of 1-800-CRIME-STOPPERS, right? It's a hotline. You call. If you are witness to a crime, you call anonymously, and you report that crime to your local police. Now, if the police show up and they see the the evidence or they find what the anonymous caller told them to be accurate, to be true, and they follow up on it and the evidence starts piling up and there's perhaps other witnesses who then can be talked to and they corroborate what the initial anonymous caller said... The identity of the anonymous caller is irrelevant. What's relevant is what they initially stated has been corroborated by other witnesses. And now the authorities have to do a proper investigation to find out if what was initially stated by the person who called anonymously is true. The identity of that person is not relevant. Not in the slightest anymore. And that's where we are in the impeachment hearings. We've had multiple people in the House proceedings get questioned. And 
many of them corroborated what the initial whistleblower stated. So now having the whistleblower and knowing who they are is not relevant to where we are in the process, not in the slightest. It's another bad faith argument that you hear people do who want to muddy the waters around impeachment and make it more difficult for people to stay focused on the task at hand. And it's, it's, it works to some degree to some people, but it shouldn't be working, and that's why it shouldn't be working. And then that brings me to another one I see is they'll bring up the Bidens, they'll bring up Hunter or Joe Biden, and about the Burisma, you know, Joe Biden being on the board and blah, blah, blah. Again, this has nothing to do with impeachment. Now, you know, if you want to dig deeper into that and we want to, you know, have a discussion about how, you know, people using their uh, their place in society, their uh, their authority or their their connections to get, you know, friends and family cushy jobs to where they're unqualified for. Sure, we can have that discussion, but that has nothing to do with the impeachment and the articles being brought forth against Trump. Zero, nothing. It's a completely different topic. It's another way that they're trying to muddy the waters on the impeachment. And then the next one is you'll see a lot of Trump supporters talk about how we have no firsthand evidence. There's no firsthand evidence. How are we having a trial? How did it get all the way to the Senate without any firsthand evidence? Well, what we can what we can do is we can quickly remind them that Trump and his team are blocking every single witness who has firsthand evidence from testifying. They've they've blocked 12 key witnesses. 12, a dozen. They've they've blocked a dozen key witnesses from testifying in the house. They're trying to block them from testifying in the Senate. And why do you think that is? I mean, if you were innocent and you knew with beyond a shadow of a doubt that you didn't do what you were being accused of, wouldn't you want as many witnesses as possible to sit down and be questioned and talk through how you're innocent? Isn't that something that you would want? So it seems kind of odd that they're blocking so many people with firsthand evidence from testifying. Next, there have been nine witnesses subpoenaed who are being basically just ignoring the subpoenas to testify. Now, I'm not sure why on earth this hasn't, um, the, the Democrats haven't gone to the next step and start you know, arresting people for doing this. But, hey, I mean, we're, we're not there yet, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if they have the balls to do that either. But the, the witnesses that do have firsthand evidence, many of them, the ones that have been subpoenaed, nine of them, have just not, they've been blocked by the Trump and his team. Then, Lastly, that, that brings me to 
some of the documents that have been subpoenaed. There have been five major documents that have been subpoenaed that are being blocked by Trump and his team. Again, this brings me back to what I said about the witnesses. If you were innocent and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt you were innocent, wouldn't you want as much documentation in front of the country, in front of everyone to see proving your innocence? Why are you trying to block these certain things from being on in trial? Makes no sense. Doesn't make any sense to me unless unless perhaps there's something in these documents and there are things that these witnesses would say under oath that would prove the case that you should be impeached. So again when when you hear a supporter of Trump or or a right-wing supporter talk about how there's no first-hand evidence understand that all the witnesses who have been subpoenaed or have been um, asked to testify are being blocked by Trump and his team. And then you ask yourself, why are they being blocked? Why are they not listening to subpoenas? Well, there's really, in my eyes, there's really only one good reason why that's happening. So we can't allow them to use that that talking point while at the same time blocking witnesses and ignoring subpoenas of witnesses who have firsthand evidence. You can't do both, and we can't allow them to do both. Now let's get into um, the Democratic primaries, the nominees, uh, their polling, and a little bit about my opinion on where I think it's going to go. So... A really good, um, really good way to to kind of understand, uh, you know, where things are going to go, and typically with polling numbers, and you know where the country is as a whole, and different polls, is really to look at the betting odds on the different candidates. There's this really good um, book called. Um, Thinking in bets, um, and it basically just helps you to look at situations in your life and to come to make better decisions when you think about it as if you were placing a bet on the decision you're about to make. So when we look at the betting numbers for the Democratic candidates, Joe Biden the betting odds for Joe Biden are around 40%. That's huge. Um, the next closest is Sanders, and he's around like 28, 29% last time I looked. Uh, and that's, you know, the betting odds are a very, very good indication of, um, you know, how things are going, how things are going to go. People, That's where people are really putting, you know, their money where their mouth is, so to speak. They're actually putting money on on someone. And um, it doesn't um, it doesn't always correspond with who they actually support. So they may be supporting Sanders, but they're actually when push comes to shove, they're putting their money on Biden. 
And uh, that is a very strong tell to me of how things are going to go. But when we look at, you know, the actual polls and the polling, Biden is still very strong, remaining around, you know, 27 percent or so nationally. Um, National polls aren't obviously as important. It's really just a select few swing states that are important. But even within those select few swing states, Biden seems to perform better um, than the, the other candidates. Sanders is next in the polling. And then Warren. Warren's fallen quite a bit behind Sanders and Biden. And one of the biggest areas that Sanders is lagging behind Biden is, is with uh, black voters. Biden does extremely well compared to the other candidates with black voters. And this is extremely important for the Democrats to, to take into consideration if, you know, if we want to win. And that has to be the number one priority right now is doing everything we can. Everything needs to be in accordance with the one goal of removing the the mango menace from the White House. And that is why, regardless of who the Democratic nominee is, we have to throw our support behind them when, when you know, the, the final nominee is, is, uh, is there. So Biden, his support uh, among black voters is around 52%. Warren and Sanders are are right around the same, around 13%. So he nearly has a 40% advantage with black voters. Now, this is due, I think, to a couple of things. One of the things I think it's due to is the fact that a, a lot of black voters... Um, that are Democrat tend to be um, a little more uh, less revolutionary. They tend to be a little more establishment. They tend to be a little more on the conservative side of the Democratic policies. And that's where Biden is obviously more of those things than than Warren or Sanders. Second, Biden was the VP and best friends of the first black president in this country. I mean, that has something to do with it. No doubt that has something to do with it. And you, you, you take those into account, him having such a large lead over the next two presidential candidates in that area is a huge problem for Warren and Sanders. And Biden also has quite the lead with Hispanic voters, too. I mean, over Sanders, it's roughly now only like 4 or 5%. It's like he Biden's around 30 and Sanders is around 25. But again, that's, that's another five points there. You know, you add that on to the, the support he has with black voters. I mean, now we're looking at, you know, like roughly like a 45% difference. That is tremendous, and that's very hard ground to make up at this stage in the process for Bernie or Warren. I mean, let's let's face it, Warren has no chance of making that up. Um, and you know, it, it's um, it's definitely 
it's extremely important if we want to win. And it's definitely something that we all have to take in consideration. Now, those may change a little bit when the primaries actually start happening and the voting starts taking place. And, you know, Biden or Bernie or Warren win certain states because momentum is a real thing and it can change um, the polling going forward once you win a few states and people seem to throw their their support behind the candidate they think they, that can win and that's a real thing and right now though you know I, I don't honestly see that happening on such a large scale that it's going to close the gap very much between Warren, Sanders and Biden and then you know, if, if you only lived on social media, if you only lived on Twitter or Facebook or you would be you're probably blown away by these these stats and these these polling data because Biden just gets destroyed. He just gets lambasted on social media all the time with these funny memes and little clips of him making these gaffes. And I get it. It's completely understandable. But you have to understand that. Most people, in particularly Twitter, aren't on these platforms. And if they are on these platforms, they're not on them for politics. They're on them for some other reason. So they're not seeing a lot of the same things that, you know, the political junkies are seeing on these platforms. And we're confused as to how people are so strongly in support of Joe Biden. And um, another reason for that is Biden has support strong support with older voters and obviously a lot of these older voters aren't on social media as much as you know gen xers and millennials something like this also is hurts warren and bernie because they have a lot of younger support but a lot of you know younger people don't vote so that younger support Online and in and on in the polls, yeah, it looks good. But when push comes to shove on voting day, a lot of them don't go actually show up to vote as opposed to the older generation that does. And a lot of them are throwing their support behind Biden. So, you know, it, again, if I had to, if I had to bet, Back to the beginning of here, um, I would be putting my money on Biden. It's just really a no-brainer at the moment. Now, again, like I said, the polling could change, which could then subsequently change the, the betting odds, depending on who wins these first few primaries that come up. And they're going to be huge and pivotal, pivotal to um, what happens going forward. But, you know, we'll see. I th- first one is just a couple of weeks away, so it um, should be interesting. should be very interesting. And let me just finish this segment with um, Michael Bloomberg. The man hasn't been able to get on the debate stage because of the rules of the DNC, and he's, he's still polling, I think, around like 7 or 8% nationally. This has to do with the fact that, you know, he has just mountains of money. He's, his net worth is estimated to be around $58 billion. 
If this guy really wants to be the hero we all need right now, he needs to drop out of the race and throw his mountains of cash that he has behind whichever candidate ends up becoming a nominee. He can run so many very strong Trump attack ads for the next, what, nine months leading up to the election, and it would be it would be huge. It would be extremely important, and uh, it's something I'd love to see him do, and we'll see if he does it. He should honestly just drop out now and coordinate some sort of campaign just attacking Trump. It would be the best use of uh, his funds at the moment if he really wanted to to help the country remove the mango menace. Moving on to the last segment of this week's episode, let's talk about the economy, um, how it's doing and my thoughts on the economy, how it's doing, and economics in general. So the S&P, the Dow, the NASDAQ, they're all at all-time highs. Um, this is wonderful. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. But let's not forget that stock market, the stock markets aren't the end-all, be-all of how an economy is doing. It's... Um, it's something like about half of the country owns stocks and even less than that of middle-class Americans own stock. It's below 40% of middle-class Americans who actually own stocks. So, you know, when the, the stock market is doing well, it's great. Yes, it's good, but it's generally only good for about half the country. Um, And it also furthers, that's also one of the reasons that it furthers inequality because you have generally the, the Americans that are more well off, the, the wealthier Americans, they're, they're getting capital gains through the stock market while at the same time wages have been stagnant furthering the, the, income inequality gap because the lower income wage Americans, middle class, lower middle class don't own stocks. So they're not feeling those capital gains. They're not getting those capital gains while the more wealthy Americans are. And this just furthers the gap in between the two, the two uh, camps here. Um, Next, we we do see that home prices are also at an all-time high right now. Another uh, good thing, another great thing for the economy. Um, expansion is the longest in history, 126 months. The economy has expanded for, that's a 10 and a half years. So that encompasses all of Obama's presidency and where we are currently in Trump's presidency. Um, Unemployment is at a 50-year low at 3.5%. This is something, a trend that we saw, it started to 
to unemployment started to go down under Obama. It continued to fall under Trump. Um, again, this is another good thing. This is people getting jobs is positive. Job growth is the longest in history, 111 months. That is what slightly more than nine years. So again, that encompasses most of Obama's presidency and um, where we are currently in Trump's presidency. Now, the Fed is also expected to cut rates again. Um, this is another thing that's sure to help the economy. Uh, these are all good signs for the economy. Um, they also can be indicators that, you know, with all those signs being positive and the fact that wages are still really not rising and they're saying staying stagnant and, you know, the, the purchasing power of the average American has basically remained the same since the 70s, coupled with the statistics I just gave you, that is an imbalance that furthers the income inequality gap. And it also shows you that something is still, it's still not working for a large portion of the country. The economy is not, uh, it's not working. It's not helping those people as much as it is other people who already have money in, uh, in, in other areas besides just, you know, their job. And this is a problem. Wages um, should be rising, and they should have been rising since the 70s or so. Um, the median has basically stayed the same. Um, wage gains have mainly just gone to the highest earners. And again, that furthers the income inequality gap. Today's average hourly wage is just has just about the same purchasing power as it did in 1978. Um, that's obviously not good, right? Something's wrong here. And, you know, you got to ask yourself, ask yourself, when was the last time, you know, you got a raise at your job? And if you did, how much was that raise? I just want to quickly read this uh, little excerpt here from a Pew Research on the widening income inequality in this country. So based on analysis of household income data from the Census Bureau found in 2016, Americans in the top 10th of the income distribution earned 8.7 times as much as Americans in the bottom 10th in 1970. When the analysis period began, the top 10th earned 6.9 times as much as the bottom 10th. So as you can see, it's now 8.7 as opposed to how it was in 1970 when it was 6.9. So the gap is widening um, and it's getting worse. So we can see that there are quite a few Americans not reaping the benefits of this growing economy and they're getting left behind. We need to figure out why they're getting left behind and we need to do something to try to help them you know, reap some of the benefits of uh, our growing economy through the years. I mean, there are, there are always going to be be people who, you know, do your your local jobs at at Target and you know work at, you know, 
maybe not high paying prestigious jobs, there's always going to be people who have to do those jobs, right? So do we want those people to perpetually be caught in a state of working paycheck to paycheck and, you know, not living, uh, you know, well enough to supply the life that they need in order to be happy. I mean, we don't. There are always going to be people who need to do those jobs. We don't want all those people to be stuck at a job where their wages never increase and they're constantly trying to scrounge by living paycheck to paycheck. Now, obviously, for sure, those people, many of those people need to um, live more within accordance of what they make. But there's also some things at play here that are keeping them in a situation they're in that are that are out of their control. And we need to collectively do something to uh, remedy that problem. And then... You know, it brings me back to the, the the bevy of economic statistics that I initially opened up with here about house prices and unemployment in the stock market. And a lot of people are going to hear that and think like, oh, Trump's president, uh, all those things are doing well. Yes, he is. But a lot of those things go back to when Obama was president. And then furthermore, hot take here, I just don't think that one guy, the president, really has that much um, sway over the entire country's economy at large. I think people put way too much stock, no pun intended, into the fact of who's president. And that's why the economy is doing well or, or is doing poorly or, you know, you yourself are doing well economically or not based on who's president. Yes, there are certain instances that you can point to where the president has done this or that to really boost or or hurt the economy for sure. But I think by and large, people put way too much emphasis on who is president and how the economy is doing. There are so many moving parts to an economy. There are so many gears that need to be lined up correctly to help the other gears in motion. And there's much about economics that we still don't understand on a macro scale. And, you know, when, when I say we, I mean like, you know, economists, extremely smart economists who spend their entire careers studying these things. There are many aspects that we're, we're still, you know, learning and, and kind of understanding how things work. And, and that's precisely why economics isn't a hard science. What I do think a president can do is um, specifically hurt certain sectors of the economy, which can then have, you know, knock-on effects on other sectors of the economy, which then can hurt the entire country's economy. So, for instance, uh, Trump's tariffs that really just put farmers in the Midwest in this country in a vice grip and really killed some of them out there. So that is one specific thing he did, a policy he did that hurt a certain sector of the economy and it hurt them bad. 
Now, you know, did you or I feel that if we weren't, you know, directly linked somehow to farming and farmers and their produce? No, we didn't. Um, Could it have knock-on effects on other sectors? For instance, you know, that could have a strong effect on restaurants, perhaps. And then it could have um, a further trickle-down effect on the employees of restaurants, uh, on restaurant owners. So you can see how things like that can kind of, you know, roll downhill um, and pick up steam for sure. But, you know, by and large, I have a very strong belief in the fact that people put too much emphasis on the president as one person having such a large control over whether the economy is doing well or not. Again, there are outliers, I'm not disputing that, but as a whole, uh, I think just just people, you know, they hang too, they hang their hat on that uh, a little too often. And if you disagree with that, I'm open to having my mind changed. So if you like the podcast and you want to support it, there are a few ways you can do that. You can share it on any one of your social media platforms. You can talk about it on your own podcast. You can rate and review it on all the relevant podcasting apps like Apple, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can reach me at P-I-T-T-E-L-L-I, like it is, at gmail.com.